David and Abby, his dear wife and our longtime friend, are both um, running at about, I would say, 500 amps all the time. They're totally committed to this and uh, deeply involved in the planning and, the, and ultimately in the operations as well. We've been partners in this, in this development, I think, for at least a dozen years, maybe longer, and uh, we will be partners for a long time to come. So um, David and the rest of my team have been closely involved in the planning, and they're now closely involved in keeping an eye on the contractors and so forth. Uh, we expect to have a grand opening in April? April. All things going well will be April. Uh, I'm going to say a few words about Paul uh, soon, but I think it's now time for you all to see a video. One of the great joys of a library, whether it's a private library or public library, is serendipity. So certainly when you come into David's library, you know, you never know what's going to be on the table that David's looking at or on the screen. And there is an aspect of that that we're trying to replicate in the MAP Center. That when students come or people come for a lecture or a scholar comes, that there'll be a rotation of materials available to look at. Other people will be working in the room and somehow you'll get a sense, not just of what you're looking at and what you came to the MAP Center to look at, but of all the other possibilities. The vision that I've held for the center is that it'll be this amazing place where people will come to enjoy the maps as exhibits, to work with the maps as research, to come to a lecture about maps, to have a class about mapping, and particularly, I think, the contribution that I would like to see the center make to map libraries in general is on the technical side, the whole digital side, to make the digital tools like GIS and large visualization screens really work and sing with the physical maps in ways that furthers all of the different things that we want to do there. The centerpiece of, uh, of the center is a very large screen. It's 10 feet high, 15 feet wide. It can display maps that are in their original size. Imagine what you can do if you can magnify these maps. But uh, to be able to bring that map in, bring in other maps of different time periods, be able to compare all in the same space, while at the same time, turn around and see the physical maps. The Stanford faculty is very sort of geospatially oriented. And that was thrilling to us, the idea that this collection would be used not just by our normal beloved map lovers and cartographic historians, but by Americanists, by linguists, by environmental historians. We see students coming in and faculty coming in understanding that they can use spatial information in a way to look at the world differently and come to some different conclusions about it. One of the things we've worked hard at is taking the physical pieces, making them digital, and then adding born digital information on top of that to allow people to do this kind of analysis and understand things in a different way that they didn't before. Stanford kept coming out on top in our thinking because of its commitment to the digital, which was very important to me and Abby 
because this is a collection not just of the physical materials, but currently almost 60,000 high-resolution images and metadata and geo-referenced images. There's a whole digital instantiation of the collection that Stanford was quite interested in and willing to preserve. When you think about building a collection and its afterlife after you're gone, what matters the most is stewardship. Uh, and so naturally you think about giving it to a library, and not just any library, but a library that has a dedicated preservation staff, understands preservation science, and does not just material preservation, but also digital preservation. Cartography will become the visualization of data of all types. We will be pioneering a lot of techniques. Some of the techniques will work, others may not work. And we will keep trying out new ideas. So this, in a sense, makes the center into a laboratory, which I think can be very exciting to donors to be a part of that story. Looking at maps is a way of visiting the past that you can't in any other way. As I see David interact with maps, I'm sure he did this as a young boy, that you enter into a map and it really is its own world and you can very easily get lost in it. Well, I agree completely and I, I wish in my undergraduate days I had had access to this kind of center, this kind of mapping. The center can be a place where the passion that all of us have who love maps can be made real and can be expressed. The conversations at the interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that's working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. Thank you, Mike. Uh, I think that video expresses very well the excitement and commitment that Abby and I feel uh, towards the Stanford Library and towards the MAP Center. And we hope that uh, all of you here in various ways will be drawn uh, into interacting with the MAP Center and, and help with its future. Uh, part of what we want to share with you this evening in this short talk that Paul and I are going to do is um, to see this talk itself and what we've arrayed here as an example of the kinds of things that we want to have happen at the center. That we'll be showing you physical things, Paul will be bringing out his instruments, I'll be showing you, well you've already seen some of the many maps and atlases that are here, but also we'll be showing you digital images and transformation of those things that will further our understanding of them. So, our talk is about wayfinding and wonder, which is a great title that we're not responsible for, but that Gabrielle came up with and that we adore. Um, as Mike said, we're so thrilled that Paul is giving his instruments to the center. Thank you, Paul. And as I've said to Paul, it's not just the instruments, it's Paul's head. He knows so much about the instruments and has so many stories that uh, are so compelling, and he's going to bring those to the center as well. Uh, 
So we'll go through some of this material, and as Mike said, afterwards uh, feel we'll have a question period, and then we can also just join together and look at things and have discussions about these wonderful objects. So we're going to do Earth, Sea, and Heavens. That's the realm of mapping, starting with the Earth. We have this image of Claudius Ptolemy, who was a wonderful uh, uh, Greco-Egyptian uh, geographer around 100 to 150 AD. Ptolemy was obsessed with latitude and longitude, and he really established the whole principle of latitude and longitude, that we could find things by identifying where they were on different axes. In his Geographia, which really survives, and here you're seeing a page from book three, it survives as tables of places. His maps themselves did not actually survive. But starting around 1400, his maps resurfaced and they were brought to light. Uh, 27 maps in total, one of the known world and the other 26 of localities in the world. It is thought that Ptolemy used at least two kinds of instruments to determine latitude. This, something similar to this, uh, this is something Paul suggested to me, the Chaucer astrolabe from 1324 that Chaucer discusses in his treatise on astrolabes. It's quite a beautiful, amazing instrument. Uh, Paul can say more about that a little later. Ptolemy also used a, a fairly simple quadrant to uh, measure the altitude of the sun and stars so that he could calculate longitude. Um, Ptolemy's map of the world shown here of, on Mercator's version of it, thought to be one of the most beautiful, had a built-in flaw that was really quite fortuitous. He thought the, the world was 18,000 miles in circumference. It's actually 24, as we know. So he underestimated what Columbus, who was using Ptolemy's maps, was going to face as he went, sailed west. Uh, he didn't, if he had known that the distance was so large, perhaps he wouldn't have embarked and history would have been different. So maps, the errors in maps can be useful and interesting and very affecting. Uh, Ptolemy's maps were also the inaccuracies because of his uh, knowledge of longitude. Here we have Scotland bending way over to the right because he had the incorrect longitude for Scotland. So some of these are, are quite interesting. Um, later on, and you can see this on the back wall, Ortelius looked back at the Ptolemaic maps. This is Ortelius's map from 1590, showing the world of Ptolemy and then the world as it had become known from the discoveries of Columbus and other explorers. Thanks to Barry Ruderman, who is here tonight, I've acquired this wonderful atlas by Petrus Bertius. In it is what happened, it's sort of a paradigm of what happened to mapping after Ptolemy's maps were lost. These are cartograms. This is the Putinger tables, which are a series of four sheets. Uh, there are eight maps. They stretch out 21 feet. And they show the entire Roman world road system, but it is not in an accurate latitude and longitude format. 
it's, it's very distorted north to south. So it shows us Rome. Here it is, stretched out completely. But it's a very useful uh, tool. It identifies 5,000 places and is, is a major source of information on, on the Roman world. To my eyes, it reminds me very much of some of our 20th century information visualizations, such as Harry Beck's amazing map here of the London subway system from 1933, where he simplified the whole thing in order to make it more readable and understandable. With the rediscovery of Ptolemy's works in the 1400s, uh, European mapping returned to a more mathematical system of measurement and, and projection. Uh, these are maps, as I mentioned, by Ortelius. Here's Ortelius's world map from 1570. You can now see that America is part of the known world. And we also began to get various kinds of treaties on mapping instruments. So this is Leonard Digg's map, uh, sorry, his book, which has a wonderful title, Pantometria. And it's his delineation of his theodolite that he invented, and they're wonderful illustrations showing the kinds of triangulation that would become common and is the source of so many of the maps that you see here, so many of the rational rationalizations, looking forward particularly to the Cassini maps in France. This is a book I don't have, but I'm, I'm looking for. I'm looking at Barry. Uh, because I just discovered it sort of working on this talk, and I was fascinated by it. Um, starting in 1830, we're now moving ahead into the 17th century. We start to see the, the Dutch publishers make these extraordinary atlases and maps. And this is the first atlas made by Willem Blau, 1630, called the Atlas Appendix. You can see that he celebrates the rationalization of tools, of mathematics. He's showing his armillary sphere, the calipers, the globes. The Blaus, his, his Blau himself and later his son, Joan Blau, were very close with Tycho Brahe, who was the wonderful astronomer, Danish astronomer. And uh, in Joan Blau's Atlas Mayor that was published uh, later, around 1665, it shows Brahe's amazing estate, his observatory, and his instruments here. This is his armillary sphere, his sextant, his quadrant. So this is the rise of these instruments beginning to have real effect. All that said, there was still a very common practice Maps copied each other, and it's one of the ways that knowledge was transferred. So Blau's map of Virginia that appears in this Atlas Appendix, 1630, is a marvelous map. Obviously, Blau himself did not travel to Virginia, so he used the best map at the time. This is John Smith's map from 1612. When you compare them together, you can see that Blau took everything that Smith had and more. So this copying of maps was, was very, very common. Getting closer down to the earth and a little later in the century, 1675, 
John Ogilvy did this marvelous atlas called Britannia. It's over here behind me, which you may want to see after the talk. It also celebrates the tools of survey, but he uses these amazing ribbons uh, to do strip maps of all the roads in Britain and Wales at the time. And in order to keep the ribbons parallel, you can see he changes the compass orientation of each map, so north shifts on the different ribbons. These are just marvelous maps. Uh, again, the title page of that particular map shows the pedometer that they used and also their, uh, the staff, which Paul is a Jacob staff, uh, along with the compass and the diopter to get their position. You can see it up close here. Again, on the title page, all of their various tools, similar to what Paul has laid out here. Switching over to Italy in 1691, an extraordinary geographer, uh, Vincenzo Coronelli, in his Atlante Veneto, just festoons his title pages with survey instruments. You can see all of these. Carnelli was an amazing geographer. I think the Atlante Veneto went on to 13 volumes. Uh, and this is his map of, of the Arctic, which is one of my favorites. Uh, it shows all the discoveries that were made, plus it's just graphically quite, quite stunning. Then we move into the 18th century and sort of the height of this triangulation, of mapping, rationalization. We have the four generations of the Cassini family in France. This is their 182-sheet map of France, which is on the back table, the sheet near Marseille. They use triangulation through the entire country. These, this particular map shows all the triangulation points. The Paris Observatory was the zero uh, was the prime meridian. They did amazing, uh, to me the engraving is extraordinarily beautiful and the accuracy is, is, is amazing too. We've geo-referenced the entire set and it actually geo-referenced very easily. Everything just went chunk. There was very little distortion uh, because the original surveys were so sound. Here are all 182 sheets joined together this is the map that is along the back wall of the area around Marseille and the Durance River here. In 1790, the dispute between the observatories at Greenwich and at Paris was finally solved by uh, the British and the French agreeing to shoot triangles across from Dover to Calais, Dunkirk. The, the, it's sort of an exciting moment in survey because these two triangulations of two countries glow, go clachunk and they finally knew the exact difference in degrees between the Paris Observatory and Greenwich. So it was one of these seminal moments. So to aid this process, they used this monster theodolite called the Ramsden theodolite. It's 36 inches across, 200 pounds in weight, it had its own carriage, 
with special springs. And it was used for 60 years in the ordnance survey all over the UK. It's just an amazingly accurate tool. It was dragged up mountains into valleys. Here's our own version of that joining of the surveys. This is, we put this into Google Earth, the Cassini survey, then we put the ordnance survey, the British survey in, and here's, the, here's our own little version of the joining of the two. Uh, skipping ahead finally to the 19th century and to an atlas right behind me here, this is the King survey, the Clarence King survey from 1876. It's quite an amazing survey. Um, it, it basically created five maps. It was not like some of the other great Western surveys, the Wheeler surveys with its hundreds of maps, but these are very specially done. They go from Reno to Salt Lake. Here they are joined together, the topographic sheets and the geologic sheets. This is King and his group out in the field around Reno during the survey. They lived well, they lived on the railroad. They had their own railroad car, they had their horses so they could return and clean up after they'd been at camp for a while. Here they are on the left with a theodolite shooting from one of the mountains and on the right with a plane table. Here's one of my favorite sheets because it's an area that Abby and I know well. This is around Pyramid Lake, topographic survey. Here's the geologic survey overlaid on top. This is the area around Gerlach that many of you probably know where Burning Man will be going on in a matter of a week, actually in the upper right corner of this map. So, Moving over to Paul, Paul's going to start with one of the great compasses originated in the western U.S., the Brunton compass. Paul says that even today the Brunton's an essential part of the survey toolkit of geologists. It is so true. So David Brunton was a Canadian geologist and um, uh, he got tired of carrying heavy equipment in the field with them. And so the heavy equipment there, I can't quite, actually if you can hand me that black thing right here. Yeah that it would typically carry something like this. It would be on a staff and it weighs a lot. And Brunton had a better idea and he said, I will compress everything a geologist needs for a quick field survey into a single object. So this is serial number 404, so probably from about 1896. Uh, and what's remarkable about it, uh, and this one belonged to uh, a gentleman who was doing uh, uh, mine prospecting in Alaska and Argentina back at the turn of the century. Um, this is my personal Brunton that I used in the field. And uh, what's interesting about it is, if you look at them up close, how little has changed. Uh, there's induction dumping, uh, damping on it, so it's a fancy feature, makes the needle settle down. But what's really amazing is this is still a fixture of geologists. And if anybody ever had a child who was a, a majoring in geology, this was the mandatory Christmas present uh, to, to carry around. Um, but that era that David was talking about of the King Survey and beyond, and really the turn of the century was the great era of mapping in California for geology and the like. There's one gentleman, Tom Dibley, 
who mapped more of California than anyone else uh, before or since and did it with instruments like that. But they also carried, in the time of King, he probably carried one quite like this. This is a pocket sextant, box sextant. This actually was my personal sextant. I used, I, this is the first instrument I got when I was an undergraduate doing field research in southern Mexico and was using it to study alignments of Mayan ruins. Um, and he would carry that, and of course you're not by the water, so to use a sextant you need a horizon. This is a, a wonderful late Victorian artificial horizon that you would carry this and you had everything you needed. Alexander von Humboldt uh, waxed poetically about uh, box sextants, saying it was the perfect thing, that the exact quote was, um, very useful for travelers when forced in a boat to lay down the sinuosities of a river or take angles on a horseback without dismounting. Uh, so, you know, this is, you know, if you are planning a long trip up the coast, my advice is carry a box sextant. If the batteries die on your GPS, it'll, it'll save you. Back to you, David. So we'll turn to the sea, but as we go to the sea, we'll go back to a map of land that was very, very important in uh, the way that the sea was mapped. And that's Mercator's map of the world from 1569 on what we now call Mercator's projection, but at the time it was just his map. Uh, his map, and then as it was modified in uh, 1599 by, by Wright, by Wright allowed the, what we now know is, he, he scaled the distances based on latitude. That was the problem with Mercator's map is that as you, the distances change, of course, as you go north. But these innovations enabled more accurate sea charts because now mariners could plot a course on a chart and it would cross all of the meridians at the same angle. So they would actually get to where they were going. Seems obvious to us today, but this was a big, big deal. So this resulted in charts, and here's an example uh, from Peter Hoos, a Dutch map maker and chart maker from 1667. This is his French edition of his atlas. But here's his chart of Virginia, and of course it includes New York and uh, the area around Boston, and we see the wonderful Loxodromes, the rum lines, these were the ways they could now plot straight courses because of the Mercator projection. Here's also, Glenn isn't with us tonight, but Glenn McLaughlin, I wanted to remember him. With, this is his signature map of, it's on the cover of his book about California as an island, and it's, uh, it's all of those of us who love California, this, we think it's going back to this. Um, <laughs> And it, it's an extraordinary map. So uh, Peter Hoos's atlas was really not an atlas to take to sea. It was so elegant, so beautiful, it's quite expensive. Rather, people would take to sea something like this atlas. This is uh, Van Coylen's wonderful atlas, and you could, it's here, and you can see it. You can see that it's definitely had the wear of, it's blue-backed, and uh, it's quite simple. And the Van Coylen family produced atlases in the late 1600s, early 1700s. Uh, they produced some gorgeous 
sea atlases as we know, but they also produced this whole run of just workmanlike ocean atlases for the huge Dutch sailing trade that was going all over the world. And those are the covers. The problem that, that they had with accuracy related to longitude, of course. Latitude they could measure at sea fairly well. Longitude, they didn't have good luck with longitude. They would take clocks, but clocks were not accurate enough. So here we have the productions in the period from 1730 to 1773 of John Harrison. He was this extraordinary clockmaker. Xander knows more about him than I do because it relates to the long now clock and the making of clocks. But this is his H1, which is first pendulum clock. Uh, it was tested. It was fairly, fairly accurate, but not accurate enough. So he moved on to H5, which is actually based on a pocket watch. And this is what became the clock that really made the measurement of longitude possible. You understand what they were doing is that they wanted to have the hour of the place they left. They wanted to be able to track that on their journey. Then they would see where the sun was and know it was noon where they were, but back where they left, if it was London, it might be 3 o'clock. So they knew the rotation of the sun and then they could figure out where they were. It's quite a simple thing to us now, but it was very important. So many ships crashed into the headlands of Cornwall because they didn't know where they were. And that's why they created the competition for this clock, as it was. Uh, once that was established, moving into the 18th century, this atlas that is here, part of it, one of the volumes is here on the table by J.N. Bellin. Uh, it's from his two-volume Hydrographie Françoise, it's an atlas of charts of the whole world. Again, he celebrates in the cartouche all the instruments that they use, the plane table, etc., etc. Uh, our set also includes a third volume, this Atlas Francoise, which, uh, in which we found an extraordinary thing. And just, it, we found this pen. The Francoise atlas had never been used for 200 years, and the pen was just tucked in to one of the charts. And it, when we started putting the whole story of the atlas together, we realized that what had happened, the atlas came to me through a London auction, and the atlas had been captured in a battle. And this is the annotation by the owner, W.P. Williams. He captured it in a battle off the coast of Brittany, off the island of Ushon, on November, on, uh, August 10th, 1780, he had a battle with the French frigate, the Nymph. And the British were uh, the victors in this. The French captain was killed. The, ship, the French ship was captured. And they captured these three atlases. They considered the atlases so important. They were like, you know, tools of war. So they kept the atlases, and then they passed down through William's family and then came to me through auction. But what we think is, William's never used the French volume. It sat undisturbed. And the pen, we think, is the French captain's pen. And he made these notes on the chart here 
on the day he died, showing his route over to the battle. So these are the kinds of things that just gets our hair, what little we have left of it, standing up and exciting, and it's all part of the provenance of, and the story of these amazing books. The quality of the engraving here that Bellin did is exceptional. And uh, finally ending on this chart, which is sort of dear to Paul, it's uh, and me, it's chart of Tamales Bay done in, uh, this was made in uh, 1873, it was 1878. It was originally surveyed by George Davidson in the 1850s. And there's a note here from Davidson saying January 9th, 1857, earthquake. And he's written this note at the bottom, you'll see right after the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. So he's looking back almost 50 years. When he was a young man, he was surveying on Tamales Bay. And he says that there was great shaking and then all of a sudden thousands of dead fish came to the surface of the bay. And that it was a result of a huge uh, uh, amount of underground gases going up and killing the fish. Quite a story. Davidson, well, Paul will comment on Davidson and, and his role. I'll just say that this chart also is interesting because it's the beginning of electrotyping where uh, A.D. Bache and, and his survey team actually began to move away from engraving and to this much cheaper but very, very accurate and you can see elegant, elegant stuff that they were able to do and it brought the cost of charts down and made them widely available. So I'll turn it over to Paul. He'll start with the Hadley Octon. Sure. Um, you know, at it, 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 the risk of stating the obvious, maps and instruments have a symbiotic relationship. Uh, you get a better instrument that leads to more accurate maps. More accurate maps create greater demand for more accurate instruments. And really interesting transition happened starting 1699 up to about 1800. So as it, 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 it's a little open to question, but the general consensus is that Isaac Newton uh, was the first one to conceive of a double reflecting device for taking elevations in the sky, which is, um, and this is an example of such a device. This is called a Hadley octant, and it's called an octant because that arc is 120 degrees or one-eighth of a circle. Um, and it has a couple of, of fairly... Uh, revolutionary feature. So think of poor Ptolemy using that quadrant uh, or, or an Arab astronomer trying to measure the elevation of a sun with an astrolabe, uh, looking down the bore of the instrument straight at the sun with no filters. Uh, the double reflecting device allowed them to put filters in place uh, that made the job a little bit easier. And what's interesting is Newton invented, as the story goes, the idea of the double reflecting device. So there's a, you're taking one reflection off the horizon and one reflection off the celestial body and moving this arc to, to bring them together. Um, and he told it to William Halley of Comet fame, and also Halley did some very fine maps. Um, and Halley kept it a secret inexplicably for about 30 years. And it was in, independently developed by Hadley who was born in the late 1600s, lived in the, the mid-1750s. And this is, this is one of his devices. The problem was, uh, when they started getting up against longitude, 
there was a difficulty that there, in fact, it is possible to calculate longitude without a clock. You never, I mean, how many people here read Davos Obel's book? No, okay, so fabulous book, wonderful person, great stuff, but there are some details. There was a method called lunars, and, and you calculate longitude via lunars by measuring the distance between the moon and a known navigational star, and then you take the elevation that gives you your latitude, and you consult the table. Uh, it's it a little inconvenient. If the moon's not up, you know, you can't see. Well, the problem is it turns out the Hadley with its 120 degree of arc wasn't, you need about 140 degrees to take a decent lunar unless you're very lucky. And so what happened was this device was displaced in 1791 by this device. This is a, a George Adams sextant, very early sextant. Um, and you can tell because of this frame, it turns out, as we understand in Silicon Valley, never buy the low serial number of anything. Um, <laughs> that frame looks lovely, but it led to unacceptable movement on the arc. And so they went to a, a different style. So these are only made for about three years. Um, but it's also interesting because the arc on this, how many people have heard the name Jesse Ramsden? Uh, Ramsden was a famous instrument maker. Uh, P, uh, David showed a picture of his theodolite earlier. He came up with a dividing engine that allowed them to cut these scales much more precisely. And that plus metallurgy allowed them to shrink the uh, measuring device down to this size and also extend the arc to 140 degrees so they could actually do lunars with it. But what's really fascinating is this device, you would think, oh, well, this absolutely would replace this over time. These coexisted for a very long time. Harrison built his, his uh, fifth clock you know, in the 1700s, but it was not until 18, after 1800 that those darn clocks were cheap enough that mere mortals could take them on their ship. Uh, the Royal Navy at one point only had two of them in the entire Navy. So they would carry both of these devices. And this was the everyday device for measuring sun's altitude. Uh, and this was brought out on special occasions when it was absolutely needed for the accuracy and the price difference. So in, in the 1850s, a uh, device like this would have cost about two shillings, or two pounds 15, which was uh, slightly more than an entire uh, year's salary for a, uh, a servant in, in an estate. This one, when it came out, was uh, 15 pounds, 20. And a footman in 1790 or a coach driver would have earned between 15 and 20 pounds for an entire year. So you could see why this was well taken care of. And this one, probably this one, and most certainly this one, never went to sea. This probably belonged to some you know, wealthy one percenter uh, in, in the 1790s. And it was hanging around in the estate. And somebody finally tripped over it and said, you know, we need to get get that thing out of our garage. Which, by the way, I'm really grateful to Mike and David because I really want to get this crap out of my garage, too. Um, the third one, though, is this cute little device, and it goes straight to Davidson. Um, this is a quintant, so again, you know, a sextant. You can do the divisions, and it only goes, uh, it goes up to a full 190 degrees. Uh, it has no filters on it. You don't use this to look at the sun, and it has a funny little angle, a uh, handle, that allows you to hold it horizontally. This is what like what Alexander von Humboldt was talking about. It's a device for precisely measuring horizontal angles. And it is exactly, this one belonged to the British Hydrographic Office uh, around 1900. 
And Davidson would have used a quintant exactly like this in making those marvelous maps of the California coastline. So it was used for mapping and it was also used to keep your ship from going up on the rocks. Back to you, sir. So we'll end with the heavens. Uh, on the wall here and also uh, the cube itself are examples of uh, Ignace Gaston Pardis, who created a series of six of these very beautiful star and constellation maps in the late 17th century. Uh, all six map plates joined together to make a unified view of the heaven as seen from the earth. So it's a geocentric uh, mapping, which is quite unusual. I'll also be showing the Italian Cassini uh, globe here, which is more typical, the God's eye view, which is God way outside the universe. The map maker is God, of course. Um, no coincidence. Uh, Pardis are very special. Uh, he's done these in the mnemonic projection. So it's a bit odd. So, you know, it's, def it's the universe as a cube. So here are his faces all joined. And you'd be viewing these from the inside. But the virtue of it is that, like the Mercator map, any straight line gives accurate measurements. That's the virtue of the mnemonic projection. Uh, they're also just stunningly and smashingly beautiful. They think that they're based on Blau's globes, uh, his celestial globes. We have manipulated them, we've georeferenced them, we, you, we've visualized them in various ways. Here we've uh, reprojected them in GIS. So this, you can see how different, this is extending the mnemonic out to the horizon. Here we've changed to a spherical uh, projection. Here, this is a wonderful, odd, Berghaus projection. I, I just like it. I've never uh, understood what it was used for, but it's quite stunning. And here we have it in a Mercator uh, projection. And we also, when we put it in Mercator, then we were able to put it into Google Earth with my dear friend Bruno Bowden, who is somewhere here. And uh, yeah, there you are, Bruno. Bruno remembers way back when we, we put these in Google Earth, we also, Bruno, put them in Google Sky. Uh, we put the, the uh, Cassini in Google Sky, although we had to flip it. We had to reverse it because it was God's eye, and in Sky we were looking at it from uh, the Earth. So I think many of the Google users were wondering why the letters were backwards. We had to explain. So here's the Cassini. Uh, this is Giovanni Maria Cassini, no relationship of the French Cassinis. He was a wonderful map maker and globe maker, flourished in Rome about 1780s, 90s, uh, 1800. Uh, these globe gores appeared not only in globes that he made, but also in his huge atlas, this Nuovo Atlante. Uh, in three volumes. He was obviously inspired by Cassini, 
he comes 100 years later. Excuse me, by Coronelli, he comes 100 years later, but he has that same expansive geographical approach. He writes a whole chapter on how to make globes, which is unusual uh, at that time. He drew on the stark catalogs of Flamsteed and Lacau. He added two new constellations. We also took these globe gores and we georeferenced them after they were scanned. So here we're able to reproject them. And then finally we put them into a virtual world. This is my avatar, Mr. Darwin, Map Darwin, in uh, the Rumsey Map Islands in uh, Second Life. And uh, this is a orrery that we made and we wrapped the, uh, I know, this is not deep scholarly work. Uh, we, <laughs> We will get more serious at the MAP Center, but you have to be playful a little bit, you know. At the same time, we did another trope. You'll, you notice the two at the back, there's the terrestrial and the celestial that MOVA has made. Typically, they were seen together. Uh, we put the terrestrial globe uh, in the middle and wrapped the celestial around it. And then finally, uh, we've done this collaboration with MOVA Globes, which They've used our georeference scans. Um, there's two in the back, the terrestrial and the celestial, and then there's one large uh, celestial here. MOVA loves what we're doing at the center, and whether we like it or not, we're getting their whole globe collection. So if you can imagine a room where all these things are turning slowly, it may drive you mad, but it'll be interesting. Um, so. Celestial globes and charts themselves were, as Paul and I were discussing, scientific instruments. They were used, particularly globes. Uh, and they were able to, you were able to calculate all manner of celestial phenomena, from the paths of comets to eclipses. So Paul, I think, is going to start with his, or uh, his carry celestial globe that you could carry on a ship to show all of the navigationally important stars. Okay. So I'm not going to pick up the carry you can haul. And, and do come over and look at this stuff later. By the way, one of my favorites is, um, this is still from Earth. This is a cavalry uh, um, plane table. And it was designed for a cavalry officer to wear this on their wrist so they could do mapping on the fly while being shot at. And you, you as a compass here. So do take a look. because. It's amazing all the ingenious ways people have tried to do so. Yeah, this was the first wearable. Um, this, this looks like a globe. It's actually a navigational instrument. Uh, this was carried, would be carried on a ship, and it shows only the 50-odd navigational stars. So it was used for planning one's night sights, and then also um, uh, you know, in terms of memorizing the stars and the like. And it would, uh, that's from about 1910. Um, but it, as we talk about the sky, I bring this up. So this is, if, if the Hadley was the beginning of double reflecting, this is one of the first made, and that was one of the first sextants made, this is one of the very last sextants ever made by the Seaploth Company. The, the British dominated instrument making in the age of Hornblower, and then the Germans bypassed them, and the highest standard was Ploth. This is actually not the highest art of Plath. 
Uh, it was after Lytton acquired them. And it was one of the last sextants made. This actually came off a US nuclear submarine. Uh, it was the captain's personal kit. And this little thing here is an artificial horizon. So you would plan your sights with something like this. And they actually had these on US nuclear subs, not so nice in wood, and, and then use this to take the pictures, uh, or take, take your sights. Um, and yes, let's, so go on to the next one. So what I'm gonna kind of do is just work backwards here. Um, there pretty soon will be no more sextants made. That's, and, and I wouldn't advise buying a plot that was made after 1970. Um, because the way we relate to the sky is changing. And it goes all the way back to this. This is a, a, a lodestone, silver bound lodestone. And under the, this is the name of the gentleman who I think owned it in the year 1791, which is interesting that you would carry a lodestone on a ship because compass needles were made of soft iron and had to be remagnetized periodically by rubbing them against a permanent magnet. Well, in the 1750s, an English gentleman figured out how to make permanent steel magnets and they are steel needles and they absolutely took off. So it's fascinating that someone was still carrying one of these in 1791, and I like to ascribe it to the conservatism of mariners that, well, those newfangled steel needles might work, but it could fail, and just in case. Uh, or, you know, a personal talisman. And, you know, this is something from the Earth used to find one's way on the planet by referring to the sky. And that seems so, so quaint and so old, but it, we're poised at a moment, this is what makes it especially interesting to me about the map room, is that we're about to abandon the sky for navigation. GPS is ubiquitous, but one of the top priorities at DARPA and in the Department of Defense today is coming up with a navigational system that does not rely on satellites and software for obvious reasons. And one of the things we're going back to is Earth's magnetism. So this, I think, little piece from 1791, nicely completes the circle through sky to sea and back to earth. He was a Lodite. Oh, oh. Give this woman another Rumsey cocktail. All right, well, I think we're about done. Um, We'd be happy to have some questions if, if you like, and uh, we can also just continue our discussions afterwards. Uh, next year, we hope we'll be able to have this kind of gathering at the Rumsey Map Center at Stanford. And we certainly hope that all of you that are here tonight will join us in making the center a very special place that will celebrate maps and uh, their many technologies, both the old and the new. So thank you very much. Any questions, elaborations? The bar's uh, open. The bar's open. Quick question on the Quint's surveys. Quinton. Right. Um, to simplify, was that used for triangulation? Yeah, this would be, it's an essential triangulation tool. So all of our USCS maps at the preliminaries show all the triangulation pathways that are initiated with that. Yes. Would you use that with Mount Diablo, Mount Tam, and like Quint Mount or something? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. 
Right, and you should talk. Did you meet Hans Hasselbach earlier? You guys should talk. This is the god of surveying instruments, and you should talk to him. Quint, yes, it's a fifth. Yeah. And what it is is, as they got better at draw, doing these arcs, they could make the instruments smaller. So they're cutting more precise. That it made it possible to do that. Yeah. 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 About 40 years ago, I was working with enhanced Landsat uh, images, which made a great base for all the other kinds of geophysical, geological, and geochemical data that could be superimposed on top of it. And I imagine that uh, I, I know the world has moved a long way since then. But I, two days ago, I got a message from NASA saying that the internet. National Space Station was going over my zip code. And so I was out there and watched it go over. And my question is, after this magnificent presentation of the history of map making, is there a, a segment somewhere in this map center that will be addressing the current technology? Oh, absolutely. Great question. Um, I'm actively looking to collect exactly that type of material. Uh, do you remember the Eros satellite? Sure. I used to get in 1966 weekly mailings of the black and white images in strips. I, I wish I had kept them. I didn't keep them. But I'll, we're looking for exactly that type of material because it's a big part of the story. And 50 years from now, 100 years from now, that will that will be a huge part of the story. We're also looking to preserve GIS, the products of GIS. Julie knows, and Salim both know a lot about that. A lot of GIS work that's done is what we would call a little bit throwaway. And it's, it's so, Stanford is so good in its library to think about preserving the GIS tables, the databases, uh, the software itself. So yes, by all means, we. We, that's a big part of the 20th century. Uh, and that really ties to Long Now Foundation as well, and Long Now is working with Stanford and with the MAP, uh, the, the, the MAP Center and, and Julie back here. Uh, as I'm sure many of you know, for example, the original data from the Viking lander, uh, all that stuff collected at enormous cost can't be read because there's no longer a machine around that can read the tapes, and besides, the iron filings are falling off. So they're going to tackle that stuff. Too late for me. So I, we should take one more question, and Mike has last question. OK. Yeah. What if you comment on the uh, projection apparatus behind you that, oh. that was working when we came in? Xander, stand up. Um, so. Uh, this is a device that was built by a Swiss artist named Jörg Lenny. Uh, it was commissioned for this space. Uh, he's built several drawing machines. Uh, the other one uh, that he made at a much larger scale was just uh, acquired by uh, MoMA's permanent collection. But uh, we can send kind of any uh, vector-based information to it, and we can also sequence the, uh, the stroke order and stroke direction to kind of reveal a story. In this case, it was elevation coming forward, and, and this particular one is of uh, the topo of the site uh, where we harvested the juniper berries for the gin that's in those bottles <laughs> and, 
um, which was used for our donor program for how we built this place. So uh, it was uh, it's kind of a, a meta story behind maps and this space. Mr. Keller. That was it. That's it. All right. Great. Well, let's thanks, have a folks. drink. So let's have a drink and we can do more chatting. If you enjoyed this talk, we hope you'll subscribe to hear more. You might also like Long Now's other podcast, Seminars About Long-Term Thinking, with more than 200 more long-term thinking lectures hosted by Stuart Brand. Subscribe to both at longnow.org slash podcast or wherever you like to listen.